Starring Bela Day in... But, Ma, that's my favorite movie. Oh, well, all right. But don't you spend too much time in front of that TV. Do you hear me? Yes, Ma. Oscar for Best Picture is presented to... And the Oscar goes 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 to... And the Oscar goes... And the Oscar goes... And the Oscar goes to... The Oscar goes to... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to. 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 The Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. So we have an exciting episode today, guys, which is going to be centered around the Academy Awards since the show is going to be premiering on April 25th, which will make it the 93rd Academy Awards ceremony. Um, so I thought since the awards is coming up, that it would be a great time to talk about some nominated movies. So let's go ahead and get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to my podcast. But Ma, that's my favorite movie. And I am your host, B. Ledang. Now, if you are new to this podcast, what I do is introduce movies. We may critique them a little, but that's not what it's all about. Uh, We normally have two different styles of episodes. The style we're doing today is where I have a theme, and I'll talk about two movies that have a plot that's centered around the subject of this episode. And what I do in this episode is I'll give an introduction of what the movie is about and I give you the details of the beginning of the movie just up until the major plot point. So today's episode is titled, But Ma, That's My Favorite Oscar-Nominated Movie. And now before we do get to the movies, I want to let you know about our social media. So please follow our social media pages for a sneak peek about upcoming episodes and what movies we'll be discussing. And I do that with a game called Guess the Theme slash Movie. And pretty much you can guess the theme by the stills of the particular movies that I'll have in the visual. Now we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we do have a website, which is butma.thatsmyfavoritemovie.com. On that site, you can write reviews. You can give a movie or theme suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast. Now all handles and the link to the website are in the note slash description box below. And don't forget if you are enjoying the episodes that you're hearing to definitely give us a shout out by tagging our page on any of our social medias. And then also don't hesitate to give us a review on Apple or on the But Ma That's My Favorite Movie website. All right, so let's go ahead and get into this theme. 
So what we're going to be talking about is movies that were nominated for an Oscar, but did not win the Oscar in its category of the best picture. So let's go ahead and get into it. The first movie we're going to talk about today, Light Camera Action. A real loser is someone who's so afraid of not winning, he doesn't even try. That quote is by the Grandpa Edwin in the movie Little Miss Sunshine, which actually was nominated for Best Picture in 2006. This movie was released August 18th, 2006, and it was written by Michael Arndt. I think that's how you say it. Um, He also wrote for Hunger Games Catching Fire, Toy Story 3, and Star Wars Episode 7. Uh, The director is Jonathan Dayton, who also directed Battle of Sexes, and uh, the other director was Valerie Ferris, who directed that movie as well, so they must be like a little duo there. All right, and let's get into the summary. So we're introduced to the Hoover family and we get a glimpse into each family member's current state. So basically what's going on in their lives currently. We have dad whose name is Richard and he is a struggling entrepreneur slash Arthur who's trying to turn his nine step program into a book. And his nine step program is all about being a winner, being positive and just going after what you want. Um, no matter what obstacles are in your way. Then we have the mom whose name is Shirley and she's just your typical mom trying to keep everything together who is also the compassionate one towards everyone and just the one that's you know keeping everyone together and somewhat centered. Um, Then Shirley and Richard they have two kids together so we have Olive who um, is considered a normal kid. To me, she does not look chunky, but during this time and uh, the portrayal of who she is in this movie, she is considered a chunky kid. And the reason I say that is because it does matter to the plot of this film, but um, we're going to get to that. Um, But she is an aspiring beauty pageant princess. And so uh, then we have Dwayne, who's her brother, and he has basically taken a vow of silence because he wants to be a pilot and pretty much he's not going to talk until he reaches that goal. I don't know particularly why he chose to be silent for that um, because a pilot, not sure. I mean, they'll need their voice, but I don't know how uh, crucial that is. So that was a very interesting choice, but yeah um then we have uncle frank who has basically just been released from the hospital after a failed suicide attempt um and then we have richard's dad edwin grandpa who i had did the quote at the beginning from him um who has a heroin addiction and mind you uh everyone in the family knows about this well except frank at at this current time all right so the family pretty much they're getting together for the first time now of course you know the grandpa the kids uh the mom and dad they've all been together but this is frank's uh first time joining the family um after us i don't know how long of a period of time he was kind of put away in this i guess you could say like the psych ward or mental institution um so he could heal after his suicide attempt um or maybe it was just a hospital but either way, he was in the hospital, he was away. And now he's finally join, joining the family um, for dinner. And so Olive is actually curious about Frank's bandage that he has on his wrist. 
And initially, Frank doesn't really jump at the idea of sharing this with Olive because she is, um, she's about, I think, seven or eight at this point. So she is still a very young kid. And so he kind of looks to her mother, which is his sister, Cheryl, um, to see her thoughts on it. And she's completely fine um, with Frank sharing what happened to him because you know what, at the end of the day, kids are going to be curious and it's good to provide them with knowledge about certain things, even though it can seem, uh, too inappropriate for them. But every kid is different and every kid takes in information differently. And I think it's good to provide that knowledge about different situations in life so that they can prepare for, um, you know, these topics, you know, coming across one way or another, whether it's at school, whether they hear it from another kid, whether they hear it on TV or whatever the case may be. Um, But what we do learn um, as they're kind of moving around this discussion, like they're not really saying anything initially, but as they're kind of maneuvering, uh, trying to kind of sway or they're trying to um, move Olive's attention from wanting to know about uh, Frank. Richard is definitely not sympathetic at all with what happened to Frank. Um, it's like he has no compassion whatsoever um, because he's the type of guy who's kind of headstrong and like, you know, if you give up on life, then you're a loser. And, and if you decide to take that route, of, you know, committing suicide, then, you know, you, you're, you're a weak person and, you know, he doesn't want to surround himself with weak people. But of course, since that's his brother-in-law, he has no choice but to, you know, be around him because Cheryl has decided to take in her brother to make sure, you know, nothing happens to him and to make sure she takes care of him and, you know, that nothing else like this happens. And so, We also have Grandpa Edwin, who has his own reasons as to why he's not sympathetic either, um, because what we do learn is Frank is gay. (laughs) I mean, we're going to get to that, but I think that was more Grandpa's reason as to why he wasn't really sympathetic about it. Um, But the Grandpa is Richard's dad. So um, I guess maybe we can kind of see as far as the mindset and not being so compassionate. That's where Richard gets that trait from. Um, but anyway, so uh, the mom decides that it's okay for Olive to know what happened to Frank because, you know, that's her uncle. And so initially Richard disagrees because he's like, she's a kid. She doesn't need to be hearing about this conversation. Um, But obviously the mom wins in that little battle there. And so she lets Frank tell Olive what happened. And so uh, basically Frank says, well, hey, I fell in love with a man who loves someone else. Um, And then it wasn't that that got me. Um, And it wasn't that I lost my job and I had to like move into this hotel. Um, But it was because he had lost to this other man who was like the second scholar or whatever. Um, uh, There was this grant, this like, I guess this prestigious grant that's given out to like, I guess the most smartest people in the world and they're the type of field he was in and he had lost to him. And so that is what made him go on the brink of wanting to end his life. And so um, then, you know, we have Richard chiming in, basically downplaying how he felt um, 
even though uh, people go through failures in life and everyone handles these type of situations differently. And instead of being compassionate, you know, Richard decides to chime in and he's like, yeah, and you know what? He made a bunch of bad, foolish decisions and um, he just pretty much just downplays uh, his emotions and just what he went through. And, uh, of course the mom is like, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and kind of change the subject at this point, because obviously, uh, we, we know where Richard stands. We know how Frank feels and we, we don't want to keep going to that dark place. So let's change the subject. And so Richard tells Olive, like, Hey, um, how about basically like you tell your uncle, like why you've been, you know, practicing this routine a lot. And so she tells her uncle Frank, like, well, uh, there's this beauty pageant. I think it's like Little Miss Chili Pepper or something. And um, she wants to enter it. And she started to get on this like pageant kick um, when she went to go visit her aunt Cindy in Laguna in California. And she was able to enter in a pageant named Little Miss Sunshine. And she actually uh, placed as runner up. And funny that she places runner up because what ends up happening is Richard tells, you know, his wife, he's like, hey, I heard something about little Miss Sunshine on the voicemail. And so immediately, you know, the mom goes to the voicemail because this excites Olive. She gets super, super excited. And so they go to listen to the voicemail. It turns out Cindy, who is, you know, Cheryl's sister, was calling her to let her know, hey, the girl who won the crown at Little Miss Sunshine had forfeited it. And so now they're, I guess, redoing the contest to crown a new, you know, pageant princess. And so, of course, this excites Olive. She, you know, uh, she she's able to get another chance at this pageant that she really, really enjoyed. Um, but there in Mexico, this is in California. So initially, Cheryl is thinking that her sister would be able to take her because her sister was the one who originally enrolled her into the pageant and she lives in California. But it turns out her sister has a prior engagement and she's not able to take Olive to this pageant. And so pretty much without a question, uh, the mom Cheryl is like, well, you know, I guess I got to take my daughter down there. We'll just go on a plane. And then Richard is upset because he's like, hey, he's still trying to get his um, book off the ground. He's still trying to get it published. And currently Cheryl's the only one who's working. So they are limited on funds. And so this upsets Richard because he's like, don't dip into our money like wait until I get my book off the ground before we start like spending our money we've been saving up and pretty much Cheryl's like yeah we have enough uh well because obviously I'm earning it so if I want to decide to go I'm gonna do it and Richard basically ends up giving in and he's like okay I'll drive y'all because I guess he didn't want to spend money like on a plane ticket and stuff and then they run into the issue where Frank is there at the house, their son is at the house, Dwayne, and then the grandpa. And the grandpa is like demanding that he goes because he's like, I've been helping her with this routine. There's no way you're not going to take me. And so then they are worried about Frank because Cheryl's like, I can't leave my brother here. He cannot be unattended like while he's healing. You know, we don't want nothing to happen to him. Um, and then we have the son, Dwayne, who, you know, they're like, well, Richard's like, well, we'll just leave Dwayne with Frank. And then 
you know, the mom, Cheryl's like, yeah, no, we can't do that. <laughs> She's like, I can't trust a teenager to be in charge of watching my brother who just came out of the hospital from a suicide attempt. And so they end up deciding that everyone's going to go. And Dwayne definitely didn't want to go because, you know, he would rather just stay home. He doesn't want to go to a freaking pageant for his sister. Um, but pretty much Cheryl promises that, hey, I'll let you go to flight school if you go. And so, of course, he's going to take the offer because he wants to be a pilot. And so basically it becomes this unexpected family trip. Um, and with all the dysfunction they have within this family, of course, the trip is super bumpy, um, but obviously it forces them to come together for Olive's passion and her dream of being a pageant princess. And so what one of the things I really love about this movie um, is the score. Um, the score is very beautiful. There's this one song on there and I remember just listening to it and writing to it whenever I used to do, you know, little fan fiction stories. Um, so that is one of the most significant memories I have of this movie. All right. Now, um, we're talking about the Academy Awards, right? So, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, um, was nominated for Best Picture in the 79th Academy Awards. And in the category they had the movie or the, in the category they went against the movies, uh, The Departed, Babel, Letters from Iowa Jima. I hope I'm saying that right. And The Queen. And the actual winner of that category was The Departed. And so, um, let's see here. So let's go ahead and get to the cast. Okay. So we have Abigail Breslin who plays Olive Hoover. She was in the movie Signs in Zombieland. We have Greg Keener who plays Richard Hoover. He was in also You've Got Mail and As Good As It Gets. We have Paul Dano who plays Dwayne. He was in There Will Be Blood and 12 Years a Slave. Then we have Alan Arkin, who plays Grandpa Edwin, who was in the movie Edward Scissorhands and Argo. We have Tony Collette, who plays Cheryl Hoover, and she was in The Sixth Sense and Hereditary. We have Steve Carell, who plays Frank Ginsburg. He was in 40-Year-Old Virgin and The Office. We have Brian Cranston, who plays Stan Grossman, who was in Malcolm in the Middle, the series, and Breaking Bad, the series. We have Jill Talley, who plays Cindy. She was in Sky High and did a voice of Karen in the SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water. We have Julio Oscar Machoso, who plays the mechanic. He was also in Blue Streak and The Legend of Zorro. And we have Justin Shilton, who plays Josh. He was in The Aviator and Angel, the series. And last but not least, we have Gordon Thompson, who plays Leary Sugarman, and he was in Poseidon and Dynasty. All right, to get into some of the behind the scenes information, um, we have quite a bit here. Let's see. Okay, so... Um, Abigail Brinslin, she actually wore a fat suit for the part of Olive. So that was supposed to be the whole thing is that Olive wasn't the conventional, you know, tiny little girl who had like this kind of Barbie, Barbie or baby doll looking image um, because of her weight. And mind you, when you look at this movie, she does not look like a chunky kid, but um, that was just how they portrayed it in the movie. Now, uh, Michael Arndt, 
um, he had to quit his job as Matthew Broderick's assistant to write Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, the movie took five years to make, mostly due to financial reasons. And that happens more than you would think, um, especially for like independent type of films. Bill Murray was the original choice for Frank. And then the second choice was Robin Williams, which we mostly know Robin Williams for more comedic roles. Um, so I think that would have been different for him to play a role like this. Um, but at the same time, Robin Williams has done more dramatic roles. Like there was one movie where he played a freaking serial killer. And I'm like, that's just weird seeing him in that type of role. But you know, these type of actors, uh, can definitely surprise you. Now the heroine grandpa snorts in the bathroom in the beginning of the movie is actually crushed up B vitamins. And I wonder when you're snorting up stuff like that, that its original tint is, isn't to be snorted. I'm thinking, what does that feel like? I don't think that would feel very good to be honest. Um, but that's always made me curious when actors have to do things like that. All right. Now while filming in a convenience store in Santa Clarita, California, Paul Dano had a lookalike that walked in the store now, Dana was actually late that day, so everyone thought the lookalike was Dano. And pretty much the lookalike, he had explained that he was not Dano. And so they, the cast, and I'm guessing the crew, had took some pictures with him, and then they had sent him on his way. So I guess he had to really explain, like, yeah, I'm really not that actor. <laughs> um, but that's, that's quite interesting that Paul Dano's in this movie, and then a lookalike just randomly comes in. So that's crazy. Okay, so Fox Searchlight actually bought the rights to distribute the film at the 2006 Sundance for $10.5 million. So this was a film that struggled to even be able to finance it. And then they were able to sell it for 10.5. So I'm guessing they probably made their profit and then some. <laughs> Um, this movie was included among the 1001 movies you must see before you die, which was edited by Steven Schneider. Uh, this was originally written as an East Coast road trip movie from Maryland to Florida, and it was shifted to journey from New Mexico to California due to shooting issues. All right. Uh, then we have Steve Carell at the time he was cast for Little Miss Sunshine was a relative unknown in Hollywood. According to an article in Entertainment Weekly, the producers of the film worried that he wasn't a big enough star and didn't have much acting experience. However, between the time the film was shot in the summer of 2005 and its release in the summer of 2006, Carell became a huge success as the star of the highest grossing film, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And in 2005, in August, the leading character of the popular NBC Emmy-winning te television series, The Office, which premiered in March 2005 and for which Carell won a Golden Globe in 2006 for Best Lead Actor in a Comedy Television Series. In the span of just one year, Carell had become such a star that the producers had gone from protesting his casting to taping him to do prominent promotion for the film. So they're thinking, oh, this guy is possibly up and coming, but not a, a big enough name for people to want to run to the movie theater to watch him. And then all of that happens the year before. And, you know, 
things just happen that you won't expect. And that's why sometimes it's, it's not um, good to really doubt people or judge people um, because of their status, because at any point people can be up and then people can go down. So it just, it all really depends. And it, it's just crazy how things end up working out in life. Okay. And last but not least. So on July 25th of 2006, Fox Searchlight Pictures invited VW bus owners to a screening of Little Miss Sunshine at Vineland Drive-In Theater in City of Industry, California. So 65 VW buses were present at the event. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. If you've seen like the cover of Little Miss Sunshine, you know, literally they had a VW bus (laughs) and that was like the most, you know, prominent Um, thing that was in this movie was that yellow VW bus and so I think that's cute that they decided to uh, invite people who had you know the similar car to the premiere of it just because of how prominent um, that vehicle is in the car and it's on the freaking you know freaking uh, movie poster (laughs) so that makes total sense all right so yeah this movie did not win an oscar but guess what it is a winner in our hearts um because this is a good movie i definitely recommend checking this movie out and definitely when you see how the plot unfolds and you know what happens when they go on this road trip and all the different obstacles they have to overcome so that they can go to this pageant for olive um it's nice and it's heartwarming and um it's a nice treat. So it definitely deserved its its nomination. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into our second movie here. Light, camera, action. Molly, you in danger, girl. That quote is by Oda Mae Brown, who's played by Whoopi Goldberg in the movie Ghost. Now, this is one of the most classic movies um that's ever graced the screen um even if you haven't seen this movie people have heard of this movie people know who's in this movie um this is just a very prominent movie that pretty much I feel most people know all right so this movie was released July 13th 1990 And it was nominated for Best Picture at the 63rd Academy Awards. All right. Um, The writer that they have is Bruce Joel Rubin, who also wrote the movie Deep Impact and Jacob's Ladder. Then the director that we have is Jerry Zucker, who directed the movie Top Secret and Ruthless People. All right, let's get into this summary. So Sam and Molly are moving into their new apartment. Uh, Sam is a banker and Molly is a potter who, you know, is very, very serious about her work. And Sam, at this point, he's stressed about work and he has a friend at his job named Carl who basically tries to ease his mind and his nerves, you know, letting him know things will be fine because the first day we see Sam at work, you know, it's not his first day, but when we see him in action, um, he has this, these Japanese clients that, you know, he's worried about impressing. And so Carl is there that that's like his wingman to let him know like, Hey dude, you know, you're, you're great at what you do. You have no worries. You're going to do fine. And so, um, when, 
you know, Sam and Carl get to work. Uh, Sam ends up realizing that his client is actually there earlier than he expected. And so he gets a message from his secretary that another client he has is needing a huge sum of money transferred to another account. So Sam is on a tight schedule because his client that's in-house, he needs to get to immediately. So he doesn't really have time to transfer the funds. So he actually goes to Carl and he asks him to help him. And Carl's like, sure, I could do it, but I need the MAC code. So it's a code. I'm assuming they need to be able to enter into an account um, to be able to transfer funds. And I'm assuming his it's good for him to transfer the funds. This MAC code is specific to Sam's account. And so... Of course, Sam is like, you know, he's in, he's in a bind. He has to give him that information. So he does. And then later that night, you know, Sam is, he's feeling a bit down. Um, and he's a bit superstitious because he explains to his girlfriend, Molly, that pretty much when things are going well in his life, he feels that he is going to lose something. And pretty much, you know, Molly's trying to reassure him like, oh, you live a charmed life. Pretty much trying to let him know that he's overthinking. Everything's going to be fine. They just moved into an apartment. He has a good job. You know, she's able to have her career as a potter. So everything is going fine as of now. And so... As they're, you know, talking and Molly's trying to reassure Sam, like everything's good. Um, they turn on the news and they see actually a plane had crashed uh, recently. And so this makes Sam nervous because he's supposed to be going on a trip soon and he has to go on a plane. And he's thinking, man, I should cancel because, you know, these things happen in threes because we are, we're learning about Sam that he is a superstitious person. So then the next day, um, Molly and Sam, they go to the theater at night. And after the show, they're walking home. And pretty much Molly brings up to Sam that she wants to marry him. And Sam mentions that she's never talked about it before. Like she's actually never wanted to talk about it before. And so this catches him off guard. And they're, you know, talking about it. And as they're walking down this alley, this random man emerges from one of the side of the buildings. And so this kind of spooks Sam and Molly and they kind of walk away or kind of like walk a little faster, but um, trying to be casual about it. And then Molly pretty much, she asks uh, Sam, like, what should we do? And Sam's like, I'll take care of it. And right as he says that, he turns around and he's like asking the guy, what do you want? And so then the guy has a gun. He's like right there behind Sam. And he's like, give me your wallet. And Initially, Sam is like trying to de-escalate the situation. And when Molly tries to intervene, the mugger slaps Molly. And of course, this sets Sam off. So then the mugger and Sam get into a tussle. And then we hear a gunshot. And immediately we see the mugger run off. And then we see Sam run after him. So we're thinking, Sam's okay. But he's chasing that guy to like get him. And so when Sam realizes that he's not going to catch him, he runs back to where he was. But then he notices that his like Molly has his body in her hands. So Sam is out of his body at this point. And Molly's like trying to talk to him, trying to tell him like to stay with her, to, you know, not leave, to stay with her because she can tell he is possibly dead or is dying. And so this freaks Sam out. And he ends up seeing the stream of light come from the sky. And it's almost like he has a choice. Should I stay here or should I go 
into this light. And obviously he has unfinished business because of what happened. He's still processing everything. So he doesn't go towards the light and the light disappears. And so uh, Sam ends up going to the hospital. He ends up hearing the doctors telling Molly that he didn't make it. And then what happens is when Molly goes home, you know, after days, possibly weeks have passed, Molly's trying to, you know, gather up his stuff, um, just trying to not move on, but kind of organize things. And Carl, who is Sam's friend, is there for her. And of course, Sam, he's staying by her side. Um, Because, I mean, at this point, he doesn't know what else to do. He just has to kind of linger there. And so Carl is helping Molly with coping with her boyfriend's loss. And he's just trying to be there for her. And as he's, you know, helping her um, get rid of some stuff, uh, he tries to get her to go outside because he's like, hey, you should go outside. It's summer. It's nice out. And she's pretty much shaken up and has some PTSD from that experience. And so she's not quite ready to go outside. And freaking Carl, who we can kind of see at this point, well, we don't really know what his intentions are, but he tells her you weren't the one who died and this infuriates Molly and she ends up slapping him and she feels bad after that. Um, so then she ends up going outside with him, which is to go outside. Well, we don't know exactly where they're going. And so Sam is left in the apartment and he doesn't want her to go with him. Of course, he wants her to stay there. And so he can't figure out a way to get through the door because he's so used to using the knob to turn it, but he can't. So he doesn't know how to get out. And then all of a sudden, we see the door open because there was like a key in it and I believe it was already unlocked. And this guy who was actually the mugger who shot him walks into the apartment. And so this confuses Sam because he's like, what is this guy doing here? And so the guy starts kind of rummaging, not messing up the apartment, but kind of looking through the drawers, searching around everywhere. And Sam is so confused why this guy, first of all, how does he know where he lives? And two, why is he here? And then all of a sudden, Molly ends up coming back to the apartment. This freaks Sam out because he's like, I don't want this dude to hurt her. And he hurt me. So what would stop him from doing that to her? And so the guy ends up like hiding upstairs or the mugger ends up hiding upstairs. And then Molly goes upstairs and she starts undressing. The mugger's like watching her. And Sam tries a thing on his feet to figure out how to get this guy to go away so he doesn't hurt his girlfriend. And so he remembers that the cat has a way of sensing him being there. And so he disturbs the cat, which the cat ends up like scratching the mugger's face. And this causes the mugger to leave. And so Sam figures out a way to get through the door. And so he follows this mugger because he wants to know like, where did this dude come from? And so he ends up following this mugger all the way to his apartment where we end up finding out that this mugger's name is Willie. And then as soon as Willie gets to his apartment, you know, Sam is still close behind him and he hears him talking on the phone. And so Willie is talking to this person who Sam doesn't know who it is. And he basically tells him like, yeah, I wasn't able to get, you know, it, whatever he was looking for. And he says, I'll go back there in a couple of days. So of course this freaks Sam out because he does not want this guy to go back to this apartment where Molly's at. And of course he knows Molly has no idea that this is going on. And so he knows that she is in grave danger and that something bad could really happen. 
And so pretty much Sam ends up going back out into the street and he's walking around because at this point he's hopeless. He can't communicate with Molly. He doesn't know how to be able to reach her. And so he's feeling a little bit helpless until as he's walking down the street, he sees a building that says spiritual advisor. So he goes inside and he ends up witnessing a woman named Odame Brown helping this other woman contact her husband. Now, while Oda is trying to help this woman, and we could tell obviously that she's a phony, she's not a real spiritualist or psychic. Um, and, and Sam can see through her that what she's doing is totally fake. And so he begins to comment on things that she's doing. And initially it does catches her attention, but she brushes it off. And then she hears him talking again and it freaks her out because she's like, I'm really hearing somebody. And it's not any of these women in this room because the only people in the room were women. And she was clearly hearing a man's voice. And at first she's thinking it is potentially this woman's husband. Um, but she's kind of guessing that it's possibly not this woman's husband just because of what he was saying. Like he was kind of being snarky and sarcastic about, you know, what she was doing for this woman. And so when Sam realizes that Odame can actually hear him, um, he tries to get her to say his name so he can basically know for sure if she's hearing him because Otome ends up getting up. She ends up like running around trying to figure out where this voice is coming from. And so Sam basically sees this as an opportunity to use Otome to warn his girlfriend that she's in danger, um, which actually becomes a challenge when, you know, Molly has trouble receiving the message. And then he's also having the challenge of trying to get you know Oda to deliver the message um so he's working with two different obstacles here um to be able to end up saving his girlfriend since he physically can't all right so let's go ahead and get into the cast here all right so we have Patrick Swayze R.I.P. Um, he plays Sam Wheat and he was also in Dirty Dancing and Roadhouse. We have Demi Moore who plays Molly Jensen. She was in Striptease and G.I. Jane. We have Whoopi Goldberg who plays Odame Brown. She was in Sister Act and The Color Purple. Uh, we have Tony Goldwyn who plays Carl Berner. Um, he was in the Scandal TV series and The Mechanic. We have Rick Avalis, who plays Willie Lopez. Um, he played in Waterworld and Carlito's Way. We have Vincent Chevelli, who plays the Subway Ghost. He was in Tomorrow Never Dies and Fast Times at Ridgemount High. And then we have Armelia McQueen, who plays Otome's sister. She was in Life and in the series Adventures in Wonderland. Then we have Gail Boggs, who plays Otome's other sister. She was in Curly Sue and Ed TV. And we have Steven Root, who plays the police sergeant. He was in the movie Office Space and Dodgeball, a true underdog story. We have Bruce Jarchow, who plays Lyle Ferguson. He was in Outbreak and Big. And then we have Rick Kelber, who is the mover, and he was in Soul Survivor and my favorite Martian. And 
This is one of the movies that was nominated for Best Picture in the 63rd Academy Awards. So in this category, the movies that Ghost had went against was Dances with Wolves, Awakenings, The Godfather Part 3, and Goodfellas. And the actual winner of that category was Dances with Wolves. And like I said, this is a very classic movie. So even though it didn't win an Oscar, this movie will always be a winner because it is definitely a classic. So last but not least, let's get into some behind the scenes information. So the first behind the scenes information we got here, uh, the role of Odame Brown was not written with Whoopi Goldberg in mind, but Patrick Swayze, who was an admirer of hers, actually convinced the producers that she would be right for the part. All right, the second thing we have is the horrific sounds made by the dark shadows are really the sounds of baby's cries played at extremely low speed backwards. That's creepy. Our third thing we have, Patrick Swayze alleged that Sam Wheat was the hardest role he ever played in his career, mainly because he had to be an observer to the action and not a participant, which he plays a ghost and no one interacts with him. So that would make sense how that could be very challenging. All right. The fourth thing we have, it took several months for director Jerry Zucker and writer Bruce Joel Rubin to come up with Sam's last line in the film. Uh, number five, when it came time to cast the film, writer Bruce Joel Rubin suggested Patrick Swayze for the role of Sam Wheat. The maker screened Swayze's movie Roadhouse, but director Jerry Zucker felt that Swayze was completely wrong for the part. So many actors that included Kevin Bacon, Alec Baldwin, Nicolas Cage, Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, David Devonshi, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, Paul Hogan, who instead made Almost an Angel, uh, Kevin Kline, Dennis Quaid, Mickey Rourke, John Travolta, and Bruce Willis, Demi Moore's husband at the time, who didn't think the film would work, um, were all offered the part, but all turned it down, feeling that playing a ghost would be cheesy. Zucker then allowed Swayze to audition on the instance of the actor's manager, even though he thought Swayze would blow it. To Zucker's surprise, Swayze gave a great audition and was cast immediately for the part. Okay, now some of those people I can actually see playing in that role. Um, Kevin Bacon, I could definitely see that. Uh... I could definitely see, I would say Mel Gibson, um, Dennis Quaid for sure. But I always think it's super interesting because you always think if you are not the first choice that it, like it's the worst thing. You know, everyone wants to be first choice. But in the world of acting, sometimes being the last choice is the best choice. And it, it's just really crazy how that works. Ghost is the highest grossing film of 1990. Uh, that was number six. Number seven, shortly before production began, Whoopi Goldberg was unsure if she was going to be able to put this movie into her work schedule. The part was then verbally offered to Jack A, Harry, who I love, who's in Sister Sister, um, also 227. And she had actually accepted it. However, at last minute, Goldberg was able to do the film after all and Harry was dropped 
And to be honest, I think Jack A could have did a really good job with that role. We never would have known what this movie would, would have looked like with Jack A. And since Whoopi actually won an Oscar, what if that was Jack A that won the Oscar or got nominated for the Oscar? That's crazy. Because um, Whoopi actually won that too. All right. So number eight, this is the most rented video cassette of 1991. Uh, that's when we used to rent movies, y'all. Y'all remember the blockbuster days? <laughs> Uh, number nine, the airplane crash footage shown in the TV when Molly and Sam are in bed together is based on a real crash of Delta Airlines flight 1141 in Dallas, Fort Worth on August 31st, 1988. And that is close to the area where I am. So I thought that was very, very interesting. Uh, number 10. Okay. Patty LaBelle auditioned for the role of Odame Brown. And Oprah Winfrey and Tina Turner were up for the part of Odomay. Now, I think that was very interesting. One, that we have like two different um, singers who were up for the part. And then Oprah. Um, but I thought that was interesting. So number 11, the last but not least, the film's general storyline is expanded from an old urban legend dealing with a spirit of a recently deceased trying to warn their loved one of imminent danger. All right. Well, you know what? That is all that we got for this episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, the Academy Awards is coming up very soon, which is on. Uh, it's coming out Sunday, April 25th. So definitely tune in for that. Um, I know with COVID and everything going on, it's definitely going to be uh, virtually streamed or virtual done virtually uh, or maybe not. Uh, we'll definitely have to see, you know, when it comes up. Um, but let me go ahead and thank my listeners. Thank you so much for hanging in there with me. Thank you so much for being patient with me. Um, if you're a returning listener, you're a row one period. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for stopping by and giving my podcast a chance. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Um, but you know what, you know what time it is. The show is over. The credits are rolling and I'll see you at the next show time.